slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, Angelique and I chat with actor Brad Greenquist about mime, Kenpo, Pet Cemetery, Stephen King, Star Trek, and more. And if you're listening to this and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. You can find us on pretty much any podcasting platform and social media platform and all that good stuff. Anyways, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a uh, youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker? Or all of the above? I was none of the above. I was extraordinarily shy and withdrawn. What happened was, I'll tell you this story. So, and this was uh, living in Falls Church. I wasn't born there. I was born in Maryland. And my father was in the army, so we moved around a lot. Kind of landed in Virginia. One night, this army friend of my father's came over for dinner. We didn't have a lot of people stopping by, you know. But uh, he came over for dinner, and he was this large man with this big mustache, this big, big twirling mustache, and very outgoing personality, a very big person, you, you know. And we had dinner, and then we played car, or they played cards, and I just sat and listened, and he was telling these stories about how when he was a kid, he would go to the movies to see Frankenstein and Dracula and, you know, all those uh, universal gothic horror movies, and he'd be so scared. And I thought, oh, that's what I want. Person after our own hearts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what I, and so then I really started watching all of those universal horror movies, you know, you know the, those gothic horrors. I watched them all, except I watched them on television because I was, you know, I was maybe 10 or something like that. I, right. I don't know. You know, and I was obsessed with them, completely obsessed. And then, you know, from there it grew into all of those Japanese monster movies, Godzilla and Mothra and all of those. And then all of those those kind of cheesy sci-fi stuff from the fifth, the ones with all the flying saucers and, and man with the x-ray eyes and stuff like that, you know. So I, I like, I just gobbled that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> this person that anybody ever thought would be an actor, you know, because I was still very shy and withdrawn, just seemed to be kind of, you know, a little gray mouse that, mm, that the world overlooked. Were you a theater kid at all? No, I just stayed home and watched these movies. And at some point, well, in no, I can tell you exactly when this happened, there was a transformation. In 1972, Charlie Chaplin came to the United States to get his special Oscar because he had been kind of kicked out in the 50s. And I saw one of his movies, The Gold Rush, on TV, and I laughed so hard. So suddenly I like just dropped all the horror movies and then I was just like a Charlie Chaplin fan and that led into Buster Keaton and all those silent comedy people, you know, those movies. And I just gobbled those up. And then, and then I, I actually, I made a movie. I shot a, a Super 8 movie. And it was like a, a Buster Keaton chase comedy, and I won first place in a in a film festival. <laughs> yeah, 
That's a debut. And, and best acting. <laughs> Two <laughs> awards at this film festival in Washington, D.C. <laughs> no training prior to that, huh? You're right, right. No. And then that kind of got me going. That was like my coming out party. <laughs> my introduction to the world. <laughs> So you hit the ground running after that. How did you land your first professional job? Well, let's see. That's a good question. I started out actually training in mine. You know, those irritating street mines. <laughs> I was. And I, I, I earned my first dollar, first dollar performing doing that in the street. And I still have that dollar. I saved it. 77. I was 17 years old. <laughs> I realized at some point, you know, I did all these classes and was... I had this guy that I would do this with in, in Georgetown in Washington. And uh, and I realized, you know what? I can never, I, I had seen Marcel Marceau on stage. And this was one of those amazing, amazing performances that just floored me. But I knew that I did not have the wherewithal to do what he did. Uh, there would There was no way I could do it. My body wasn't that controlled and I didn't have that finesse. And so I dropped it, I dropped it. And then I thought I would make movies you know, if you're directing movies, you have a cinematographer who takes care of the photography and you have an editor who does the editing, producer who takes care of the money. But a director has to know something about performance in order to tell this story. I went to acting school to learn acting so that I could work with the actors. But And I thought, well, as soon as I get pretty good at acting, then I will switch to directing. But I'm still working on it. I'm still, you know, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Technically, your first love was uh, directing, and you kind of just fell into acting. Yeah, kind of. I wanted to direct movies, but then acting was such a challenge, and it still is. You know, after 40-some years of doing it, it's every job is still a real challenge. Because I'm still, at heart, I'm still that shy little kid. I really am. You know, I direct a lot of theater stuff here in Los Angeles, and that's great fun. But restarting a new career at this age is a little bit crazy, so I don't think I'll do that. <laughs> So does, does putting on somebody else's face make it easier to be out there? You know, you put on this stuff and makeup and everything, but it's really not, really good acting is not about hiding or being somebody else. It's about, you know, slicing yourself open to bring some authenticity to it. I don't know. It's just still a challenge. It's just not easy. You know, every so often there's a job that's relatively easy, but mostly it's a challenge. And, and that's what I like. I have no idea. I don't know how I ended up here. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that I can relate to. So, Brad, uh, obviously we get to the mid-80s, late-80s, and Pet Cemetery comes along. So yeah. was that a typical audition for you, or is it sort of a right place, right time situation? Yeah, right place, right time. So I had right. I had moved to New York. I had started work. I, I, for a year, I just had a job. I worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was a great, it was oh, a great wow. job. You know, on the loading dock, and it wasn't paintings. We were unloading, you know, the books and stuff for the gift shops, right? But it was a pretty great job to have my first year in New York. And then uh, after a year of doing that and kind of getting on my feet financially. Then I quit that job and started auditioning. And I, I booked a Broadway show without an agent, but the show bombed out of town, unfortunately. It wasn't my fault, I had a small part. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got an agent, and then I did a movie called The Bedroom Window, which really put me on the map. That was a thriller, and I was the bad guy in that. And, and that is why I got this audition for Pet Cemetery. 
Mary Lambert, the director, had seen Bedroom Window and she really wanted to meet me. She thought I'd be really good for this role of Pascal. And that's kind of how it happened. But, you know, I, I'll tell you, at the time, you know, Stephen King didn't have the cachet that he does now. Right. It was a low-budget horror movie, right? It was a low-budget horror movie. And that week of my audition, I had a stack of scripts that I had to read because I was being considered for all these other movies. Pet Cemetery was one of them, but it was, you know, it wasn't a De Palma film. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of these high class things. It was a horror movie, which then was kind of looked, it, it was, they were very popular, but they were kind of looked down on by the the press and, you know, right. film community, you know. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the one script I had to read. It was, okay, I'll just kind of get through it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got these other things that, and some of them were higher profile and some of them were just junk you know so and then I just went in and auditioned and I hadn't really worked on the audition at all I just kind of kind of improvised my way through it because you know there were all these other things and like just before that I was a reader for Mike Nichols he needed a reader for his auditioning of, uh, uh, one of his movies and you know that was that was pretty amazing you know being a reader for Mike Nichols that was huge so you know the the audition for Pet Cemetery was kind of squeezed in between a bunch of other stuff and uh, but they really liked what I did I don't really know why but they did <laughs> <laughs> and then I was brought back in to meet Mary the director and we just talked a bit it took like several several weeks to do the deal you know all the negotiating and all of that and you know I was kind of young and inexperienced but I had this amazing agent and <laughs> he finally he did the deal on a Friday night while he was doing his Friday night poker game and he was like in between hands he was doing my deal which was kind of amazing <laughs> because you know he was playing poker he was like in that that you know okay I'm gonna risk it I'm gonna risk it <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So anyway, that's how that all got. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I was I was up in Maine with a lot of makeup on my face. <laughs> and do you think, how you said you didn't stress out or really prep for the role, or do you think that ended up helping you in your audition? Yes, yes, it did. Because some things, you, you're not, you're not going to be very good if you sit down and think about it. Playing this kid who is coming back from the dead to warn people and somehow be kind of entertaining and kind of kitschy in the role that kind of thing you don't want to think about it because you'll what's there to think about nothing you know <laughs> best to play it loose <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it yeah. worked obviously i mean you got yeah. it yeah those you know that at that time a lot of stephen king's movies had this you know like creep show and all of those those earlier movies they they all had this campy quality to them too that ran alongside, you know, and so you'd have the the scary stuff and the and you'd have the the bloody stuff, and you'd also have this storyline that was campy, right? And that's kind of what Victor Pascal was in Pet Cemetery, in a way, but it was a little bit. It wasn't just campy. Victor Pascal was he was this symbol of hope for everybody, you know. When he dropped in, you had hope. You knew it was going to end badly, but at least there was some hope that this this angel would help, right? And that created a lot of tension in the movie, which I think is part of its success. But this hope was kind of disguised in this kind of campy, goofy kid, you know, bloody kid. So I think it worked 
quite well. I, I think the remake that was done in 2019, they missed that part because yeah. all that that Pascal did was to deliver one message. He wasn't a symbol of hope. There was no hope in that movie. So you're kind of like, okay, we're just we're just going into the darkness here, and there's there's no ray of hope. There's no Casper the Friendly Ghost isn't popping in to make a joke, and maybe he'll save everybody. The remake was extremely bleak, starting with the mist. I think mm -hmm. that a lot of the Stephen King adaptations really just went full bore into the darkness. You don't get that little bit of camp, that bit of relief. Yeah, that you thought with the earlier movies. But, you know, it's because the, the style of, of horror movies has changed, you know. Yes. It's very different now. There's that campy stuff isn't part of it anymore, you know. And some of those those early Stephen King movies you look at and you just, now you just kind of roll your eyes at the... <laughs> Unless you're like us and then you're, you know, cheering in the <laughs> And, you know, the the style has changed. There's a lot of jump scares, which the, the new, the remake had a lot of very effective jump scares, but there was not the emotional underpinning. They didn't take that time. And also, I think that, you know, in the remake, you could see the kids with all those masks going off into the woods to the pet cemetery, which was a great image, I thought, a really great image, but it didn't quite serve the story. And I thought in our original film, that was not shown. What you had instead was Fred Gwynn saying, you know, when Denise Crosby's character said, where does that path go? And he goes, oh, yeah, that's a story. I'll tell you about that sometime just that little speech in place of this image of kids, that just gets you going, oh my God, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> you know, Fred Wynn's performance throughout was just so brilliant and so understated. And uh, I think he's the spine of that of the original, you know? Yes. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the remake had a lot of good things. It had the, you know, a lot of good jump scares. What they did with the cat was amazing. It was really yeah. good. Every time something bad happened, there was that cat. <laughs> <laughs> and I enjoyed the switch too. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, you know, instead of Gabe, it was Ellie. Yeah. yeah, that was very interesting. Yes, and then, but the end, it was just a nod to Walking Dead which that's just not going to last because that was that was you know a popular tv show great tv show but in 20 years people will go what was that so i don't know it was it was um they're very very different films and i i thought it was a great attempt you know and maybe it resonated with younger audiences it didn't resonate as much with my kids and they're right now they're 20 in their early 20s the new one didn't resonate as much as the old one with them, but they're kind of inundated with it. me. You, you know what I mean? So that's maybe <laughs> Brad, were you aware at all of the novel going into it, or did you try to read it or anything like that? Oh, yes, yes. I read it many times. I hadn't read it before the audition. I read it, and I had it on me every day of shooting, because what I would do, you know, the script was by Stephen King, and that's why it took it so long to get made because nobody wanted to do his script. And he was very insistent because he didn't like the way his films were being made and written. So he wrote the script and he insisted on that and it being shot in Maine. And that delayed the making of the film by seven years, actually. Oh. Which was great for me because, you know, I got, I got to be in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had his novel with me the whole time. So every time I was doing a scene, just before we started the rehearsal of that scene, I I would read the scene in the novel as well as in the script and see what is not in the script that I could possibly carry over in a visual way. 
So, oh, you could get so much nuance from that. That's fantastic. Yes, like one example is in the pet cemetery when Dale has brought me in there and I'm telling him not to go on and he crumbles and falls at my feet. There was, and this was not in the script, but it was in the novel where he said that Victor Pascal looked down at him with a great compassion. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I did have this little look down to him. But then I had to look up to float away because if I'm looking down and you float away it just would look weird they had to bring I had to bring my eyes up so that they could do that effect of me floating away which is basically me on some bars just kind of kind of doing that actually (laughs) 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 a little workout you know what it was important for me to look down at him with this compassion I thought that's what kind of set the whole thing you know it was the first scene of my character, that whole sequence, and you you have to set set that person up in the minds of the audience, and with that compassion, rather than you know looking down at him, or not looking down at him at all, or looking down at him with pity, or with you know laughing at him, or you know doing some you know ha ha sort of thing, you know that would be a whole different thing. Right. So that's a good example. And I also had I read a lot of I read a number of his other novels and I read a number of New England ghost stories. I found a, a copy of New England ghost stories up there when we were shooting in Maine and I, I spent my off time reading those, which was great. It was really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. So when it comes to like just the day to day stuff on set, how involved was Stephen King or was he there at all? He was there to shoot his scene and i think he was there before i was there him and denise crosby and dale midkiff they they rehearsed a lot with him there and with mary there but i only met him once i was in makeup and it was on his day when he was shooting the funeral scene and he just you know he came up to me he was like a big kid he came up to me and said oh that's great that's a great makeup oh that's that's wonderful that's just how i I imagined the guy that's great that's great okay see you later <laughs> That's the only time I met him. <laughs> I've been in a number of other things. I was in a, a mini series called Golden Years, and I, uh, another, like a prequel called a Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. That was a, yes. a prequel to Rose Red, a TV movie. But that's all. That's all. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen him again. You know. So I got to ask because you mentioned him. Uh, do you have any memories of Fred Wynn on set, and how just how was it working with him day to day? Fred was amazed. I, I didn't have any scenes with him, so we would kind of pass. He would, you know, be done for the day while I was coming on very often, and we would chat. We'd have lunch together if I wasn't in makeup. See, I couldn't I couldn't have lunch with the with the crew because when I was in makeup, because I did this one time. I was in makeup and you know the the side of my head was all bloody and everything and I sat down at the picnic tables and we were having spaghetti okay and the guy next to me he was he was you know on the crew and he was just eating and finally he put his fork down and he just he said Brad I'm so sorry I can't eat my spaghetti and see that brain of yours I, I have to go sit over there it's nothing personal and he got up and then the next person also got up <laughs> Eventually, I cleared the whole side of the table. The other side was fine. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, this is not good. And from then on, I just had my had my lunch in my trailer, you know. Alone. Oh, no. Um, yeah, which was kind of, you know. But sometimes I was there 
not in makeup yet, or I had gotten out of makeup. And, and Fred and I would chat a lot about stuff. He was a very friendly guy, very nice, just an amazing actor. And he'd tell all these stories about the old days and, you know, when he was moving along through the business. Just a wonderful, wonderful man. He gave me a, you know, he illustrated children's books and he gave me one of his books and on the inside cover, he drew a picture of Church the Cat, but with the, you know, his, his skull open and the brain and blood. <laughs> How much time did you spend in makeup for the uh, the brain situation? Oh, well, generally it took, it took about, it was, I was usually in makeup for four hours. They could get, my face done in three hours if they hurried if it was you know and if it was only close-ups that we were doing but if they had to do my hands my arms and my legs that would take five hours it was a you know three or four a.m call time for me uh, and the makeup guys for an 8 a.m shoot you know at one time i remember it was you know four hours in makeup and we shot for 20 minutes and then i was done and it was two hours to get everything off but the makeup guys were really sweet. David Anderson, who's gone on to one, win a lot of awards for his makeups, and his assistant, John Blake, they were just wonderful, wonderful guys. And sometimes I slept, you know, and mostly we just all joked around for all that time, so. In retrospect, it seemed like it was a, a well-received. Did you notice things start to pick up for you uh, personally after the movie? No, actually, none of us got work. Wow. None of the actors really got any sort of bounce from it. It was very popular, but it wasn't, it didn't get great review. It got very mixed reviews. But all horror movies then. Yeah, yeah. You know, the only ones that didn't were, you know, like The Shining or, or the, the Stephen King movies that came later that didn't have so much gore in them, but the premise was really scary. So it got mixed reviews, but it was, you know, it made a lot of money made a lot of money in its first run but none of us got much of a bump from it you know and you'd go into casting or i would go into casting sessions and everyone would say so you were in that cemetery what was that like <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> that cemetery that's amazing they were like wow oh, so you did a horror movie mm. you know because at that time, you did horror movies if you weren't working much, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So none of us, though, none of us, because we've talked about this quite a bit, and all of us were kind of didn't get much work for the year after that it was um, it was released. Now it's having this huge resurgence, you know, the uh, people love it. And it's mostly adults who, like like you, Justin, were, were children when they first mm -hmm. saw it. And so I, I think it's more popular now than it was when it, when it opened. I don't know if Angelique would agree with me, but I'd say it's one of the top Stephen King adaptions, just in yeah, general. I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Post-Pet Cemetery, you know, coming up in the 90s, you appeared on a lot of iconic TV shows, you know, several Star Treks, Walker. Uh, so when you look back, Charmed, uh, when you look back across all your television roles, which ones stick out to you as memorable? I've been really lucky, you know, I haven't been stuck playing the same role over and over, like many actors kind of play one role over and over. Yeah. And I got to play, you know, like, like in Charmed, that warlock with the third eye. <laughs> <laughs> and the Star Trek stuff, you know, with the, all the makeup, those are hard, those are difficult because of, you know, like one of those, in Deep Space Nine, I was playing this kind of lizard mafia guy from space and 
I was completely enclosed. I couldn't hear because my ears were covered. So when people talked, all I could hear was, you know, unless they got right up in my ear. So when we were shooting that, I would have to, you know, just peripherally watch the other actor's lips to know when it was my turn to talk. Wow. <laughs> and, and when you're in that stuff and my hands were, you know, were completely covered, my whole body was covered. And so your skin doesn't breathe and you start to go crazy after a little while. After like a 15 hour day, you're just like, you want to tear this stuff off. Very, very difficult. But the roles themselves were fun, you know. Yeah, I've had a lot of, I, I don't know, I, you know, television, you do it and then you're wrapped and it shows at some point and you see it at some point, you get your money, but you've moved on to the other stuff. You know? Yeah. And so you never really think about it much. Not like movies, because movies tend to live on and on not much more than television, you know. So I've been, I don't know, all I can say is I've been really fortunate. The, the TV jobs I've done have been overall great fun. And every so often there's a tough one, but not, none of them have been bad at all. There, some, of them are, some of them are easy and some of them are difficult for various reasons. You, you know what I mean? Walker, yeah, I hadn't thought of that in quite a while. Chuck Norris, he was, really, he was a really nice guy. And, uh, and that, was, that was pretty cool because he was one of my heroes when I was... When I was young, I was doing Taekwondo, you know? Norris was the guy, right? Did you take a roundhouse on that episode? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Dang it. But, you know, I talked to him about that. I said, ah, I used to do Taekwondo, and he was like, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Was, he was very nice, but I could tell. I was like, eh. Okay, hey, you and everybody else, kid. You know? <laughs> but now, see, I've gone back to it. Now I'm doing uh, a martial arts called Kempo, which is, you know, a bit more complex than Taekwondo. And I've been doing it for 10 years now. I just, I just, uh, I fight every weekend, you know, I fight with 20-year-olds oh, wow. and uh, wow. I'm on my own somehow. <laughs> you got the power of Chuck behind you. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but he was a really nice guy. He would, you know, in between shots, I mean, he was the star and he was the producer and all of that. But he would sit and talk with the extras, just telling them stories. I mean, how great is that? Rather than just hiding away in his trailer or, or you know, doing producer things he would like really you were really welcomed on the set do you find that your background in mime helps you when you've got a prosthetic heavy costume like your lizard well, or maybe maybe it, it it gives me a sense of you know of what i can do with my body i got some very good advice on the first star trek that i did one of the westmores was doing my makeup and you know they're an old hollywood makeup family stretching back into the 30s and he said a word of advice when you have this makeup on you cannot be too big do you have a personal preference when it comes to film or television if you i like being in big movies <laughs> <laughs> i can't like, blame you you know because there there's television is very fast hmm. television is about shooting eight to twelve pages in a day and that's a lot that's a lot of material to shoot in a day but these days it can be done because the equipment is so much lighter and, you know, the, the technical end of things has become much more... The crew is able to shoot, to light and shoot faster, right? But what it means is you don't get as much coverage, you don't get as many angles. You, you know, you get this shot and then you get the close-up and the close-up from here and, okay, good, that's good enough, we move on. Because it's all about getting all the shots of the day. That's basically what the director does in television. In movies, you only shoot two or three pages a day, which means you can do 10 different angles on a close-up, 
right? Or you can shoot with five cameras, all sorts of different size frames all at once, and then move all those cameras. And you get a lot more coverage, which means there's a lot more to cut to, which just makes the actor look better and makes the whole thing look better. And it's also, you know, there's nothing like being on a big screen, you know, where your face is 20 feet tall and everybody's in that dark room just looking at you like, wow, you know, there's nothing like it. Television, a lot of people see it, it's on once and then it's gone. Maybe people catch it, maybe not. And, but mostly they're watching it like this. They're, you know, like, oh, look, oh, there's, there's, there's that guy that, that plays those roles. Yeah, let me, let me get a snack. What's he doing? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so you put all this work into it. A performance right. that people are just kind of glancing at here and there. You, you know what I mean? Right. But you know that's not to knock it. It's good work, and um, and it keeps my family insured. You know, we got health insurance. My preference is to do you know be in movies. I, I love being in movies. If you're doing all that kinpo, you need some health insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, Brad, when you zoom out and you look back over your entire career, is there one particular role that you pulled your hair out over that just really most challenging that you would say? Most challenging? Well, uh, Pet Cemetery is one of those, you know. Playing this character, going into that campy part of him was a little bit of a risk, you know, but also trying to make the guy convincing and win over the audience. Uh, you just, you know, I depended on Mary Lambert greatly tell me if, if it was okay or not, you know, because you're an actor, you're kind of just guessing, you, you know what I mean? And other, it, there's been so much, it's hard to like zero in on one or another. Lawyer roles are very difficult because of the language. You got to learn all this legalese and be able to whip it out. There was this one movie I did, the director said, well, we're going to put you in a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, how come? I don't know. I just want to, okay. And so they brought this wheelchair over. So they had the lawyer, I was playing a lawyer, but in a wheelchair, which I wasn't expecting. So I spent like three hours before I was on the set, just trying to, you know, just rolling around in that in that wheelchair to make it look like that's what I did. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of, uh, that, I was pulling my hair out over that one. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely something to spring on somebody last minute. I mean, I'm supposed to look like I've used this thing my whole life, and now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah but it turned out fine. That was called uh, Crime and Punishment in Suburbia. That was that was the movie. And you know, stunts. Sometimes the stunts get a little little kooky. Oh uh, yeah, one time I was thrown by a horse. I was I was shooting a western, a low budget western, and we like had this standoff. There were three horses here and three horses here, all with riders. We were like right facing each other and then we had to start shooting the horse wranglers said oh these horses are used to these guns don't worry about them if anything happens we'll come right in and grab them okay so we started shooting and my horse started jumping back and i wasn't much of a rider so i was holding on with my legs forgetting that the prop guy gave me real spurs usually they're supposed to give you rubber spurs Ooh. so that they don't have an effect right unless you're a really experienced rider so i was digging these real spurs into this horse so i was and i was pulling back on the rain so i was giving him two different signals so he was just doing this and i started to slide like i was about to slide under the horse and uh and i knew it and so i like i got my my the balls of my feet in the stirrups because i knew i had to jump and i was like okay the camera's there there's a big rock there i have to launch myself right there can't go into the camera can't go against the rock i've got to go right there and i just 
I launched myself off that horse, went flying through the air, landed and rolled like one is supposed to do. And I was fine. I didn't hit the camera, I didn't hit the rock. The producer came over to me first thing, and he, he, uh, he was a producer and director, and he said, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. He said, you know, suing us is not going to help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they got any of that uh, whole sequence on film. That well, everybody ran. You know, oh, okay. <laughs> they could see the horse was going crazy. You know, there were other horses that were not necessarily uh, behaving themselves either. You know, like how you're doing great, Brad. Just <laughs> <laughs> so everybody ran. So little bits of it are there in the movie, but uh, not not a whole lot. You know. What was the name uh, of that movie? No, they changed. Oh, it's called Shiloh Falls. Shiloh Falls, a low-budget movie. So that was pretty challenging. <laughs> yeah, I'll see. Yeah, I, so from then on, I just stopped telling. Uh, I stopped telling directors I could ride a horse. I was just like, no, nope, you know, get a rider on. It'll save you a lot of time. I'm <laughs> very appreciative of that. That's smart. <laughs> so, Brad, what's the best acting advice you've received in your career? Best acting advice? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Early on, you know, I had a teacher, this great teacher, and he just said, don't work so hard. Don't work so hard. Just let it do its job. Let the role, the words will take care of themselves. You don't have to act them. Just don't work so hard. And that's what every actor is always trying to do, you know, to not work hard. Because on camera, it shows up. So say you could go back in time and you could have a second crack at a role, maybe just to take a different approach for the hell of it. What would it be? Yeah, it would be Pet Cemetery. What would you do different? I would, in the graveyard scene, in the, in the pet cemetery scene, when I'm there with Dale, I wouldn't be so loud. I'd just like whisper to him, it would be something like, don't go on. Don't go on to the place where the dead walk. You know, real quiet. Yeah, that, that would... That gave me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been cool. Uh, that would have been better. I was, I was just too loud. I was young and, you know, wanted to show off my voice or something. But that, that little moment, I would like to have, I'd like another crack at it now. <laughs> <laughs> With all the makeup, nobody would know that, you know, I'm in my 60s. <laughs> You're right. So have you seen any movies recently that have moved you? I haven't seen much recently. I've just been so busy all this other stuff and so I haven't seen the latest thing I've, I, you know I've, I watch a lot of older films that just knock my socks off sometimes I like those films of Wong Kar Wai the, the um, I think he's out of Hong Kong his films are really generally I really really enjoy them like um, Chungking Express is that what it's called Chungking Express and ah, I can't think of any of the names of these movies right now but he's a he's an amazing filmmaker and all that stuff coming out of Asia is is pretty brilliant did you guys see the host yes 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 (laughs) (laughs) what a great movie so dark but man those opening scenes of the of the monster coming out of the water mm-hmm. chasing everybody. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to snack on while you're watching a movie just to, to bring it all in? I don't snack when I'm watching a movie. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Very, actually. But nobody, that, that having popcorn or anything to snack on when you watch a movie only came in after the sound came into the movies, uh, which is pretty interesting. 
pretty wow. good. Wow, I never cool. knew that. You know what? You know what I? Uh, okay, here's this is kind of wacky about you know what's a movie you've seen le- lately that you love? I took my whole family. I live in Los Angeles. I took my whole family up to Oakland to see a, a screening of Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, a silent film, and it was a, a full orchestra playing. And uh, the theater was like a 3,000 seat theater. It was packed. That, it's like an experience. You have no idea what it's like to sit in a packed theater that huge with a full orchestra watching a Chaplin movie on a big screen. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing because he has these shots that just go on forever without a cut. And it's just gag after gag. And it's perfectly timed where the audience will burst out in laughter at one gag. And just as the laughter starts to subside, boom, there's the next one, the next burst of laughter. And then that laughter starts to subside, boom, there's, and it's all without a cut. The guy was amazing, just an amazing performer and filmmaker. That was, that's like probably the movie event of the decade for me. Wow, that sounds fantastic! That it sounds really great. does. We, yeah, we don't have that uh, in South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to San Francisco, you know, to see this, you know, it was done by the the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, and you know, I took my whole family. You know, it, it like cost about a thousand dollars for you know getting us up there and the hotel and all of that. You know, but who cares? It's an experience. For an hour and a half movie. You know, it's it's worth it. It's worth everything. <laughs> Agreed. So, Brad, what's on the horizon for you? Is there anything that you can tell us about without getting in too much trouble? Well, you know, we're still pulling out of this pandemic. So I I shot a movie last year called uh, Resurrected. It's like a sci-fi thing. It's a Russian film. So I don't know where that's going to be or what. It was a little odd. It was shot. The director was in Russia and he was shooting it over Zoom. He was uh, communicating with us over Zoom and... And uh, there was a small production unit here in Los Angeles. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to turn out. I hope it turns out well. And uh, that's that's all. I'm doing a play right now in, in Los Angeles. And uh, that's about to end. And then who knows? Who knows what's next? We'll be watching. And <laughs> we hope. <laughs> Brad, it's been a pleasure talking to, talking to you, man. Thanks for giving us yeah, some time. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure on my end, too. This is fun. Thank you, sir. Stay cool, guys, all right? We will. Okay, bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine. A treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.